Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, your weekly look into the world of Royal Caribbean Cruises. I'm your host, Matt Hotchberg, and this is episode number 502. And today, I wanted to talk about doing things differently. I'm always looking to change things up, improve the way that I cruise. So today, I wanted to share some easy ways that I think you could do things differently in your cruise. Here we go. So whenever I look at cruises, I always try to look at ways to improve and have a better experience overall. In some cases, it's really doing things fundamentally differently, right? Maybe booking a private tour instead of a Royal Caribbean excursion. Maybe it's booking a balcony instead of an inside room. But in other cases, it's more of a subtle shift, maybe more of a A rather than B kind of thing. And I wanted to share some of these ways that I'm doing things differently and things I think you could do differently on your next cruise. Now, certainly I recognize there is no incorrect way to cruise. It's more of a just personal preferences than anything else. I mean, we can talk about fundamental mistakes, but then there's a lot of ways that I think could just be improved by doing things differently. Instead of eating at the buffet, why not choose a specialty restaurant? Or arriving at the theater 10 minutes before a show begins, why not arrive earlier to get better seats? Doing things slightly differently on a cruise can save you time and stress and make your overall vacation more pleasant, quite frankly. So I've got a number of different ways that can really help your cruise with a few of these tweaks. Starting with number one, something that we kind of discovered as a family, and that is applying sunscreen on board the ship instead of when you get on to the beach. So before you pack your sunscreen in your day bag, you might do a better job of actually starting to put sunscreen on while you're in your cabin. This is something we started doing with our kids because when we got to the beach, the situation was they were so excited to go into the water immediately that the last thing they wanted to do was stop, put on sunscreen and wait for it to set, blah, 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 blah. Instead, what we started doing is having them put on sunscreen while they're still in the cabin. And that way, when we get off the ship and get to wherever we're going, they can immediately go to the beach or pool or whatever they're doing that's outdoors. This helps really make that transition from getting the excursion started a lot easier. Now granted, it requires more time, and prep time especially, before we're ready to go, which admittedly, as a dad, it is like herding cats uh, when it comes to getting the family ready in the morning for everybody ready to go and off the ship. Sometimes it feels like we're moving the Army of the Potomac rather than a family of four, but you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a better fight for us to be able to have the sunscreen applied while in the cabin than off the ship. Now, applying sunscreen before you disembark can really also help with just applying, you know, I'm talking about really just, you know, mental anguish, right? Of like, how long do I have to wait? But truly, it can also help with preventing sunburn because it's one thing to put on the sunscreen, but you're supposed to let it sit for a little while. How long? I'm not sure. They, you know, the company says one thing, people have their own rules on it, but Obviously, if you apply it on board the ship and then you, whatever time you get to the actual water, it's going to have sufficient time for it to set and be good to go. So I think when it comes to ports like Perfect Day Coco Key or Cozumel, you know, certainly it makes it a lot easier to do that while you're on the ship. And that way you can apply sunscreen. You won't forget it when you get on the ship. Sometimes that does happen during the winter months. Not that we forget it, but it just becomes not as much top of mind. When it's, you know, when it's 90 degrees outside, I think I remember about the sunscreen. But when it's comfortable outside, it can easily forget about it, especially if it's cloudy. Anyway, the point is, is that it's a good idea to apply sunscreen while you're still on the ship as something to, uh, you know, help, you know, make sure that you're getting it on there. And of course, remember to reapply. That's just on you. There's no workaround for that one. Number two on my list is to get beach towels at the gangway instead of the pool deck. So here's another port day thing where inevitably I could be somewhere. I could be in the cabin. I could be at the windjammer. And at some point, we realized we got to get towels for our port day, you know, because we're going to need them for our beach or what have you. And inevitably, the task falls to me to go get the towels. And in many cases, I would then stop what I'm doing, 
go up to the pool deck and grab towels, which is fine. But every single time I get off the ship, when you get to the gangway area, there is a towel station over there. Sometimes the location is not necessarily obvious, depending on which elevator or staircase you come from. But there has almost always been one, unless we're in a really cold port. You know, when I was in Norway, I didn't see any because nobody needed a towel for that one. But in the Caribbean, there has always been a towel station. In fact, on one of the cruises I was on recently, I, I forget which one it was, I actually went to the pool to get a towel and they asked me, are you getting a towel for your day in port? And I said, yes. And they said, you need to go downstairs and get it at the gangway. I guess they were rationing towels or something. But anyway, the point of this is that you can get it at the gangway, which is on your way. I mean, no matter what you're doing, you're getting off the ship at the gangway. You have to go past it. And I just find that actually a more advantageous, smarter move. And that way you don't have to go out of your way to the pool deck to get a pool towel. Certainly you can be proactive in the night before, day before, get extra towels. I always say I'm going to do that. I never remember to do it. So that's why I just think the gangway is literally on your way. And I feel like that's a really good idea for a way to, you know, make things a little bit better, so to speak, a little bit easier. Number three is to eat lunch at a specialty restaurant on embarkation day instead of the buffet. When you get on board the ship, I love the buffet to start off your cruise. Windjammer on day one is just like exactly what I always have in mind, but it can be a little chaotic and crowded, especially if you board the ship, you know, closer to noon or later. It gets very busy between like noon and three o'clock, certainly. And there's certainly nothing glamorous about a crowded buffet, so you could certainly eat somewhere else instead. A neat idea, especially if you have a dining package, is to eat at a specialty restaurant for lunch on embarkation day instead of the buffet. Depending on your sailing, there should be at least one or two specialty dining venues open for lunch on embarkation day, usually Chops Grill, maybe an Italian restaurant, Johnny Rockets. And the nice thing about eating here is that the pace is noticeably better. Let's remember a couple things. If you're the kind of person who gets on the ship super early or wants to get on the ship super early, like me, then you're gonna have some time to kill, if you will, before your cabins are ready. And going to the buffet is great because it's the buffet, lots of variety, it's complimentary, I get that. But oftentimes we find ourselves kind of trying to tread water, if you will, in terms of time to be able to kind of waste enough time before their cabins are ready so we can drop off our stuff. That interim period between when we get on board the ship and when our cabins are ready, it can be a little inundating because we have our carry-on stuff. And no matter how lightly we pack, it's still just stuff to carry around. And it just feels like it's a lot better when the cabins are ready. Anyway, my point of this is that if you eat at a specialty restaurant on embarkation day, well, then you're gonna have a little bit slower pace in terms of, you know, getting uh, through the restaurant having a more of a formal meal. I'm not saying it needs to take, you know, 90 minutes or two hours, but even if it's an hour, it's still going to be substantially longer than you'll spend in the buffet. Now, there's a cost to it, as I mentioned. If you have the unlimited dining package or any dining package for that matter, you are able to eat uh, included with your dining package on embarkation day, and that's a nice way to extend your particular uh, value. If you don't, you can certainly just book the restaurant outright via the cruise planner website, um, the one thing with the dining package is you must wait till you get on board the ship to actually get a spot there. I usually find if you go there right away, there's not a problem with that. I think it's more of the issue if you try to roll in a little later in the in the afternoon. But it's not a bad idea. Now, an alternative, if you're not looking to spend money, is, of course, to go to some stalwart, great uh, alternatives to the Windjammer. The Park Cafe, a local fresh are two really, really uh, good options right over there. And one more way to kind of change things up a little bit is to try some of the onboard activities on port days to avoid some of the lines. If you're interested in things like the flow rider or the water slides or zip lining or rock climbing, port days are definitely the way to do it. And a really good idea 
is still do your port day stuff. A lot of times people talk about this tip and they're like, oh no, you should skip port excursion altogether and just stay on board the ship, which may not be ideal, especially if this is a port that you haven't been to before, but you still want to do the water slides and the floor rider and whatnot. So a good idea is when you get back on the ship, go to these activities immediately, especially if you want to do like the flow rider or water slide, in which maybe you already need to have a bathing suit and you may already have one on from earlier in your day. This is a really good strategy. I've got friends of mine that have been doing this for a long time where they will go to the hot tub or the pool or both when they get back on the ship. It feels like when I get back on the ship, all I want to do is like immediately just go back to my room and go to the shower and, and change. But it is a really good idea to take advantage of the much less crowds that you'll find on a port day, even in that afternoon when a lot of people are back on the ship, because most people, I think, do exactly what I just described. They go back to their room, take a shower, take a nap, and kind of just chill out in their cabin. So demand for the pools and the water slides and the hot tubs is far less. And this is a really good way to kind of do things a little bit differently uh, when it comes to enjoying what the ship has to offer. And again, if you're on a busy itinerary or it's a particular itinerary you've not done before, and you're not willing to say, oh, I'm just gonna skip all the stuff on board or on shore, I should say, in order to do things on board, then certainly, you know, this is a good alternative and I think it works out pretty darn well. So I wanted to share with you all just these easy ways to do things a little bit differently on your next cruise. And maybe you have some also some good suggestions. Again, not like fundamental, like, oh, you should book, you know, this ship or that ship, more just like, you know, little tweaks, little adjustments to how you cruise and reap some better rewards, quite frankly. All right, friends, time to answer listener emails. This is the part of the episode where I dive into the email inbox, answer questions you have sent me about a Royal Caribbean cruise. So if I can answer your question, you can always email me by sending to matt at royalcaribbeanblog.com. First email is from Edvira. Hardy's congratulations on reaching 500 episodes. Just actually heard your 300th and 301st episode today on my morning commute. Wondered something that I was while I was listening. I imagine at the same time running the blog had not become your full-time job yet based on how you described your activities running the blog back in 2019. Now that's your full-time gig and your fabulously successful entrepreneur that you are, has the experience of going on the cruise changed for you? And if so, how? It does give you the opportunity, I'm guessing, to cruise more frequently, as well as go on this fabulous adventures like you just did in Finland and on the Norway cruise. But have you found your appreciation of the cruise experience to be changed any? Thanks for everything. Ed, thanks for the emails always, buddy. I think, I mean, obviously it has. I'd be lying if it didn't. I think what it allows me, I mean, I'm going to piggyback on what you said, because that is the heart of what the experience has changed for me. I went from cruising, you know, three or four times max a year because I had a day job and I had a balanced PTO and family obligations to, okay, well, now we're cruising quite often. You know, last year I went on a cruise pretty much once every calendar month, and that was a little excessive even by my own standards, although I am tracking, I think, kind of similar to that this year. But regardless of that fact, that has changed, but it's really that opportunity. There's so much that happens in Royal Caribbean. It's something that I kind of realized early on in this whole blogging world is that trying to cover one cruise line, you realize how many nuances and differences there are across the company, especially when you're talking about different regions of the world, right? Europe versus North America versus Australia, China. There's just a lot of moving parts. And, you know, I'm not going to get to the point of where I'm cruising, you know, every day of the year and hopping between ship and ship and ship and ship and ship. But there is more that changes than you might think. And having, you know, doing this now for a living, for me, it opens my eyes to more of those opportunities. Maybe it's a new type of itinerary, like when I went to Europe and did the Norway cruise. Maybe it is going on a ship I've been on before, but trying a slightly different itinerary. Uh, seeing different the differences in times of years, 
experimenting with different programs. You know, I haven't really talked about it on the podcast. I probably should do an episode about that now to think about it. Uh, the Casino Royale program. This is something that like I was aware of, but never really delved much into. And by virtue of the fact that I cruised a lot last year, I ended up actually getting status in Casino Royale because I don't gamble a lot in one particular sailing, but if you cruise like, you know, 11, 12 times a year, a little bit, you're gonna accrue enough points. And the benefits and rewards there certainly have opened up. So I would definitely say opportunities, one. Number two would definitely be the casino and and experiencing that. I think most people with the casino just, I say most, but I, I think a majority of the people, I think it's safe to say that, get status within the casino, do a lot of gambling in one, in large chunks, I suppose what I'm doing, but it doesn't matter how you get there. The point is that there's some interesting benefits that come with that. And then beyond that, Ed, I think also my understanding of the Crown and Anchor Society. You know, I thought I, I thought I had a pretty good handle or grasp on Crown and Anchor Society, especially being a Diamond Plus member. But the more I cruise and the more I meet other people who cruise even more than I do, you get a better appreciation for what Crown and Anchor Society is trying to do, the benefits there, and as well as how people use it to their advantage. And it's been really eye-opening, quite frankly. So, you know, it, it's definitely changed the experience. I think it's been for the better. I've certainly enjoyed the ride and I'm eternally grateful that I can do this. I mean, it's just one of those like pinch me moments where I'm like, oh, I gotta go on another cruise, you know, for work. And it's just, you, you say that tongue in cheek and, it, and it's hard to say that with a straight face, but it's the truth and it's incredible. And I'm incredibly lucky to have this opportunity. So, um, and, and on top of that, you have to remember that, you know, I started doing this full time right at the end of 2019 and then we had the pandemic. So, you know, between just being lucky in and of itself, plus having a better appreciation for what cruising is post COVID, boy, you know, I'm, I'm definitely counting my, my blessings with that one. Next email is from Rob. Thanks for all that you do. We're looking at taking a short four night cruise to Canada with only one port. I know excursions have been going early and very quickly lately. This cruise is about two months out and we haven't booked yet. Is there a way to see which excursions are available before booking? I'd hate to book a cruise and then not get something for one port. I know private tours are always possible, but I like using Royal Caribbean snacks in advance. Rob, thanks for the email. The only way you could do this is have your travel agent put a hold on reservation get the reservation number, put it in your cruise planner, and then take a look at it and see what's available. It's kind of dirty. And if you do this like more than like once, it's just a lot of like, a lot of extra steps for what I would consider Rob to be. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And you're hundred percent right, by the way, that tours are getting booked up a lot quicker. I think the issue Rob is if you're trying to book a cruise at the last minute and I'll use last minute as within 90 days, if you're booking a cruise even six months out, I think you're going to find some tours available. Granted, I'm not saying there, will, there won't be any sellouts, but um, I, I feel like the hold, especially if you're like, you know, you're going to make a hold, you're going to have your travel ship do a hold, check one. Okay, that may not be good. Let's check two. Like, it's a lot of extra footwork, and I'm not sure it's really worthwhile on for either of you, the travel agent or yourself, to have to go through all quite all those many hoops. But that is the only way to do it. There is no other mechanism to be able to check which excursions are available because I don't believe, no, that won't help you. In the Royal Caribbean app, you can look at some upcoming cruises like the next like, you know, four or so sailings. But we're talking about cruises there in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, like I said earlier, if you're booking a cruise quite that close in, yeah, it's gonna be probably sold out. So thanks for the email, Rob, appreciate it. Our next email comes to us from Russell, who writes, hi Matt, I've been listening, reading and watching you for about three months, really appreciate and enjoy listening. You went to Norway and we're going to Iceland 
shortly thereafter. Love to get your input on the clothes you plan on taking and depending on if and when you reply after the trip, what you would have done differently. Great question, Russ. One thing I definitely did, I would have done differently is I would have packed more. I read so many things, Russ, about Europe and you should be more nimble and underpacking and all that. And I hated it because the reason was I was constantly like, oh gosh, I'm gonna run out of shirts or pants or what have you. And so the laundry thing was more annoying than, than I expected. It's one thing if you're packing for a seven night cruise and you know, you have one less shirt than you need because one of them got soiled. Okay, that's not a big deal. You can manage that. But like, I was just doing laundry more often and it was more top of mind than anything like that. So I would say number one, don't don't feel compelled to, to underpack. That advice, oh, you're in Europe, uneven streets, uh, it's hard to take luggage around. That's true if you're backpacking around Europe or you're doing more of a land trip on a cruise in which you're, I mean, you may do some land stuff there, but more often than not, you're on the ship, right? That's not so much of an issue. So number one, I would ignore that advice. Number two, I would definitely invest in a good multi-purpose thermal uh, layer. Um, I had packed a couple different layers and I ended up mostly just wearing a fleece jacket like 98% of the time. I had a heavier jacket. It, it was more of the jacket I had for my Alaska cruises, which are like a three in one and it keeps you warm and it's waterproof. That's important too. But luckily it wasn't that cold out and not that wet out most importantly. So a fleece jacket ended up being my best friend and I wore the heck out of that. When I got back, I was like, you need, I was like, I need to wash this. I told my wife, I was like, I need to wash this thing because I just wore it every single day and it was great. So a fleece jacket, or if you prefer a hoodie, I guess, would be a really good investment. I'd also say t-shirts are much more useful than you might think. You're thinking, oh, Iceland, cold. I'm not gonna need t-shirts. You're on the ship, it's climate controlled and long sleeves can be more of a hindrance because you might be a little warmer. So certainly um, t-shirts, but a fleece layer, I don't wanna say overpack, but don't feel compelled to underpack, especially if you're going to Europe exclusively for a cruise. And beyond that, I would also add that the fleece layer is a really important thing. Um, and, and if you have like, you know, one or two, maybe it's a hoodie and a fleece jacket, two hoodies, three hoodies, whatever it is. I think that was a really helpful uh, strategy for packing. I mean, beyond you should have a waterproof jacket just in case it does rain, because that can happen. But especially in the warmer summer months like July, it's less likely, still could happen, but it's a good idea to have one. Anyway, I think more that thermal, like the fleece jacket is more useful because it's multi-purpose and that you can that you can unzip it, you can roll up the sleeves, you can take it off, wrap it around your waist, put it back on again. I, I found it very, very helpful to have that. Next email is from Joe. I have a question about the ultimate dining package. I understand that in a la carte restaurants, you can only use your allotment once a day. The question is, since both me and my wife have the package, does that entitle both of us to the once a day? For example, if I go to the pork barbecue, portside barbecue, but then she wants to go to Playmakers, would I be able to use mine at portside and still have use hers at Playmakers? Yes, that is correct. You've got it 100% right there. So no worries at all, Joe. Thanks for the email. Next email is coming to us from Mark. Enjoy the podcast and finding it last year. Myself, my wife, or yeah, myself, my wife, and then nine-year-old daughter sailed on Wonder of the Seas over Christmas and loved it. We boarded the day I think you finished your cruise on the Wonder and used some of the advice you provided. Thank you. We're booked on Quantum of the Seas for Alaska in early August. It'll be our third Royal Caribbean cruise and third Alaska cruise. And this will be our first time on a Quantum-class ship. Couple questions. Number one, we didn't have a lot of choices for balcony rooms and selected Deck 13 to be close to the Windjammer and Sports Pool Deck to see the sights. How noisy can this room be? Listen, I can't promise you that it will or will not be noisy. I think the noise factor 
in general is a little overplayed. Um, the biggest issue, Mark, is simply, is there a public venue above or below you? Meaning if you look at the deck plan, is there like a pool or a restaurant or a bar, one deck above you or one deck below you? That's where you can run into noise issues. Um, not saying it, it definitely will happen, but that's the number one issue. You shouldn't be worried about noise from other people or being too close to an elevator. I think that's completely overblown uh, myth about uh, cabin noise that is, but there is some truth to if your room is one deck below or above a public venue. Number two, we booked the key, which I know you don't like. My daughter loved it for the reserved time to some of the ship events on Wonder, like rock climbing, ice skating, etc. And my wife found the chops lunch and really liked it. And we all enjoyed the internet. With the key, do you still need to try to book an early boarding time online in advance, or does it really doesn't really matter? You don't need one because your key gets you a time there. But if you miss the key time, then theoretically you need to have your backup time. So yes, you should still get one. And number three, with North Star, is it worth paying the extra fee to go up during sea days? I imagine Alaska, there may be some good sites. There can. I think when you go for the complimentary one in port, it's totally fine. It's more the question, I think, of what's around you. Because in Alaska, you can have clouds and you can have open ocean on the North Star. I mean, you've never done it before, sure. But I still think the, the complimentary one you can do in port is totally fine. I think it's quite sufficient. I did it when I was on Anthem of the Season in England on embarkation day. I was just sitting at the pool and I looked it up and there was a time available like with like 10 minutes. I was like, yep, I'm going to go do that right now. And that was totally fine. Now, granted, I've done North Star like a bazillion times, so maybe I'm a little jaded in that regard. The only time I would say it's absolutely worth doing the extra cost in North Star is if they offer it during the sail-in on your Glacier Day. That I would absolutely do. But um, just like randomly, like when you're going between, you know, Ketchikan and, I don't know, Skagway or something, eh, I'd save the money, quite frankly. And finally, we also have a European cruise uh, booked next summer on Anthem of the Seas, leaving from Southampton off the Atlantic coast of France and Spain. Any tips from your recent European cruise on Anthem and getting to and from the port of Southampton? Thanks for your great podcast and advice. Um, you know, I got, talked a little bit in the last email about this, but I'm going to talk about getting to and from Southampton. Certainly the train, if you're staying in London and you are like spending a day or two in London before the cruise, the train is the easiest way to go about it. Um, I took the train from Waterloo and it was simple. Um, I would also point out that when I came back, I took the Royal Caribbean excursion, the, trans the transfers, um, the bus transfer. And that was like incredibly easy. Now we came back on a Sunday. And on Sundays, there's less traffic, especially that early in the morning when the ship is, when the cruise is over. And two, there's limited train schedule on Sundays because um, it's a weekend. And they do this here in the US as well. But if your cruise is leaving not on a Sunday, if it was leaving on a weekday, I would absolutely take the train because traffic can be very problematic in, um, in England. And if you're trying to get to the cruise ship on the same day of your uh, cruise departs, meaning you're not like coming in the day before to Southampton, then I would definitely take the train. It's just, there's no traffic on the train, right? Things can happen. I get it, but it's unlikely. So I would definitely recommend that. Uh, I think that's definitely the way to go getting to and from, but the transfers were great. Uh, again, I took it on the way back. It was Sunday morning. It was a straight shot. I was worried. I booked it uh, on what I got on the ship. They asked you in the app, you know, what day you want to get off the ship. And I was like, oh, I'll do, you know, I'll take the, what time you want to get off the ship? Not what day, what time? And they said, you need a transfer. And I was like, sure, why not? And I decided to try it out. And then later I regretted it. I was like, oh, what did I doing? I'm going to be stuck in this bus. And my biggest fear was I was going to get on this bus, get off the ship, get on the bus, and then sit there for an hour waiting for the bus to leave. Nope, it left like almost immediately. It was great timing. So uh, I, I was really very 
that was, you know, one out of one experience. It's not exactly a full swath of experience, but I did like it quite a bit. I think it, it worked out quite well. So thank you, Mark, for the email. Our next email is from Lee. We're selling out of Haifa, Israel on Rhapsody of the Seas throughout the Greek Isles. We're bringing my mother-in-law along. She requires a motorized scooter on board. Royal Caribbean can recommend a supplier of rental scooters within the U.S., but not outside of the U.S. Can you guide me as to where to rent onboard motorized scooter for me on Rhapsody of the Seas in October for seven nights? And unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for you. I did a quick Google search. All I found was one website called, and this is a terrible domain name, mobilityequipmenthiredirect.com. Terrible. <laughs> but if you want to check it out, they do claim to have wheelchair rentals, both electric and manual in Haifa, but I would definitely call them. My best advice, honestly, in this kind of situation is to probably go to either a Israeli travel forum or a mobility travel forum. These two kinds of things exist. I found a website called accesstravel.com and they have forums there, TripAdvisor. Uh, you know, I, I would basically, there, there are definitely some things you might want to look at for finding a rental. It's just not quite as easy. I did also find one other website that I wanted to mention. It's called Mobility Rental Israel. Sorry, Mobility Rentals, plural, Israel.co.il, and they have rental equipment. I would call them. Do not just make a blind reservation on the website. But this one, I'm looking at Mobility Rentals, Israel.co.il. Looks like it could be good, but you definitely want to call and you definitely want to get like confirmation that it will be there when you need it. Do not assume anything when it comes to these kinds of things. So, Lee, I, I apologize for not being a little more helpful, but uh, hopefully I'll, one of these will point you in the right direction to help you out. And our last email this week comes to us from Stephen Lima. Sorry for the long email, but I just recently sailed on a five-night Western Caribbean cruise out of Tampa aboard the Grandeur of the Seas. A lot has been made about the new menus on Royal Caribbean ships, and I thought as a professional chef for the past 40 years that I would give an honest, unique, and professional opinion of the new menus. First off, I must say the staff on board the ship was easily the best service that I've ever had in any restaurant on both land and sea, and I made it a point to tell the waiter, assistant waiter, as well as the head waiter. The service was no joke. I wish I brought my dining room manager with me on this cruise because I thought we were pretty good, but after this trip, I realized we have a lot of work to do. The service was that good, seriously. I got to try the welcome aboard, the French, Mexican, Caribbean, and Italian menus. And while the food was expertly cooked, I must say that I was not really impressed with the actual selections. As a bit of background, I was on a solo cruise and I was seated at a table set up for six people. However, there were three empty seats on all five nights, so I had dinner with my brother and a sister. The brother was from Arizona and the sister lived in Key West. Neither one of them were in the restaurant hospitality business. He was not a foodie, but she was. The welcome aboard and French menus I thought were good. They were, there was enough of variety for all kinds of eaters, whether someone was adventurous or not. However, Mexican, Caribbean, and Italian menus, I thought were not as well thought out as the first two nights. For example, are fish tacos and enchiladas really dinner selections for the main dining room? To me, they would be much more appropriate for lunch and not dinner. Why not a chicken mole or a carne asada, which is a marinated skirt steak with a like tomatillo sauce? Or how about a chili lime salmon or tequila lime marinated shrimp? The fish tacos and enchiladas were like choices I could get at Taco Bell. Now, like I said, Everything was well-made. The roast of poblano soup was outstanding, as well as the desserts on the Mexican menus. The taste of the Caribbean was also short on choices. The jerk pork chop was delicious, but I failed to see any other Caribbean-inspired dishes. Hooking a shrimp, I could find that anywhere, and once again, very tasty, just not really special. The other thing that I thought was a little strange was there was a shrimp cocktail and fried calamari twice, but I guess what was really telling was that both my dinner companions ate the sirloin and chopped filet three times. 
one person had the shrimp cocktail both times and the other had the French onion soup twice. I understand why they made the switch to these menus and believe me, I always dreaded the two hour plus meals and now I'm usually done in 60 to 70 minutes. I guess that I was just hoping for a little more variety. I didn't miss the classics as I found something to eat, but I think that for the average diner, they could have been better served if they had, had better choices, not necessarily more choices, just better, more thoughtful choices. Smooth sailing. P.S. I eat at both Giovanni's and Chops for lunch and they were exceptional. Steven, this is a really well thought out email and I think this is a really fair review rather than some of the people who jump off the band, the, the, no, not the bandwagon, they jump off the rails and that's the metaphor and just start, you know, this is awful, worst restaurant, worst options, like there are redeeming qualities to it. And I think Steven kind of pointed out that he thought certain things. I, I don't disagree with some of your points. I think there's a couple of things. Number one, and obviously as a chef, I'm sure you understand this, Royal Caribbean is cooking for a very wide audience. It's one thing, if you have, I don't know anything about your restaurant or the restaurant industry, so forgive me if I'm making generalizations here, but if you run a restaurant on land, and I'm not even gonna talk about the sourcing, uh, supply chain things that land, it's much easier to supply a restaurant on land than it is on sea, but I, that's not, we're not gonna talk about that here. But if you run a restaurant on land, you you probably have a cuisine, unless you're a diner and it's just generic, but you're gonna have a certain cuisine that people expect. Diners even notwithstanding. I mean, you know, if you run a Greek restaurant, if you run an Italian restaurant, if you run a diner, there is a certain expectation of your customers that go there that they're gonna have certain kinds of things, right? Because they're gonna choose on that evening, on that afternoon, they want the food that your restaurant happens to serve. On Royal Caribbean, it's not quite like that because Royal Caribbean has to be more all-encompassing. You've got three, four, five, six, seven thousand passengers on board, but this isn't a choice that they're making in the sense of, you know, where they want to eat like they do on land. This is like, well, I got to eat somewhere, and so Royal Caribbean wants to make everybody happy, which, admittedly, is a is is impossible to do, but they try their best. So they have to offer menus that balance choice, taste, and general interest, if that if that makes sense. And I believe, I don't know this for, I don't, this is not Royal Caribbean speaking, this is my opinion. I believe they're trying to make that balance of, listen, we're trying to offer something for everybody. We can't offer everything. Can't have this Denny's style menu that just goes on and on and on and on. But we're gonna offer enough, still have variety, but we also can't go off the deep end in terms of just, you know, um, some of these suggestions were amazing. I, I like the idea of chicken mole, carne asada, uh, tomatillo sauce, chili lime salmon. Those are great choices for Mexican night. And they're great choices and better choices for a Mexican restaurant as opposed to what you see there. The themes that you're listing, it's a point well taken. If you go on French night, there are not just French items. If you go on Caribbean night, there are not just Caribbean items on board. In fact, a lot of cases, no matter what the theme is, if there are, I'll make up a number here, seven or eight choices, entree choices, you're lucky if like three of them actually match up with the theme. There's a lot of other choices that simply are just there to help spread out that appeal. And for that reason, I really believe that Royal Caribbean is trying to maintain that balance of, well, we wanna offer something so that people aren't gonna go hungry or find the food too kitschy and certainly not find the food too, you know, pedestrian either. It can't be chicken fingers, mac and cheese, chicken, and there, by the way, there are some people listening to this who are like, why can't it be like that, Matt? <laughs> I think that would be a little too basic, a little too mundane, not adventurous enough. It's tough. You're not going to make everybody happy, bottom line. Um, but I think they're trying to make that balance there. So I think your points are all well taken. And I've always said about the main dining room, it's not going to be the best food you've ever eaten in your entire life. 
there are going to be on the, you know, across your seven nights, whatever many nights are on the cruise, there will be a couple things that really stand out. And you're like, wow, that was really good. And there, most things are going to just be like, yeah, that was fine. It wasn't, you know, great. It wasn't terrible. It was just, it was good. And there might be one or two that were just like, oh gosh, you know, I'm not going to order that again ever. But overall, it's going to be good to very good. It's kind of where most of that food sits. And I think that's the goal of where they want to be. I oftentimes, I'll never get an answer to this, but I would love to ask Royal Caribbean, if you were to compare the main dining room to a land restaurant, what's the, what land restaurant are you trying to get? To? Like what quality? Because some people really believe that the main dining room should be this fancy pants, like exquisite dining, five-star Michelin rated. I don't think that was ever the case. Some people think that it should be, some people compare, oh, it's like, you know, Hardee's or, um, Oh, there's a buffet I can't think of the name of, but you know what I mean? Like they think they, they degrade it to that level. And it, you know, I'm not sure where Royal Caribbean sees the main dining room. It has evolved over the years. And if you're gonna sit here and tell me what the dining room was in the 70s and the 80s, sorry, that that, that we're talking about 40, 50 years ago. Um, things have changed since then. Cars have changed since then. Restaurants have changed since then. The main dining room is gonna change. It can't be the same thing. I get that's what it was, but there also didn't used to be seatbelts in cars not too long ago and a variety of other changes in society and things evolve. And I think the dining room is like that. So if that if you're, if you're comparing it to what it used to be in the 70s, I'm sorry, we're never gonna see eye to eye on that particular point. The point is, I think what Steven is pointing out here in his email very eloquently stated is that, you know, they're, they're trying their best here. It's not a home run. I don't think Steven by his own admission saying that he didn't, not everything was amazing, but um, I'm trying to explain also kind of where they're going from. And unfortunately, I'm not sure what they could really do to satisfy everybody's needs because you can't. You can't offer chicken fingers, mac and cheese, and also offer filet mignon and lobster, and then also offer sandwiches and chicken, but then offer basic chicken, like just a grilled chicken, and also offer a, uh, a mole chicken on on, on Mexican night and a chicken marsala on Italian night. and I mean, to do that, forget the costs. I'm not even gonna talk about that aspect. The logistics of cooking that much food, mass prepared by the way, because remember, don't know what everyone's gonna order when they get to the dining room. It's it's just untenable. It's, it's not practical for what some people may think they'd like to have on there. And that's, I think, where Royal is coming from. I have been disagree with me on that. That's okay. I'm just trying to, you know, share my thoughts on where that is there and, um, I think Stevens has some really interesting points. So thank you for sharing your email here, Steven. Thank you everybody for checking out this episode of the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast. Of course, you can always email me your questions by sending them to Matt, M-A-T-T, at royalcaribbeanblog.com. Until next time, we'll talk again real soon right here on our podcast. Have a great one, everybody. Bye.